All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the Gospel of John. Now, the last time we were here, we were completing chapter 12, dealing with the issue of the Greeks, that is, the Gentiles, desiring to see Jesus. Now, we understand that this was the final Passover of Jesus to the which he himself would die because Jesus himself is the final, the actual Passover lamb. But nevertheless, Jesus understood that it was time for him to die. This kind of like this Gentiles desiring to see him triggered a sort of a commentary from Jesus to speak about these events. And that is, that's when he went into this uh, parabolic discussion about a grain of wheat that remains above the ground, remains alone, but if it should fall and die, it will bring much fruit. And this he spoke of as to the coming in of the Gentiles, the Gentiles coming into faith that would come after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. We understand that this work would actually be done by the disciples. And then chapter 12 continues with a commentary from John in a reflection back because as we are here at this particular time in Jesus' ministry, his ministry, as far as the public ministry, is over. There are only a few days that Jesus will actually continue to live right before his crucifixion. So all of his ministry is for the most part behind him. The remainder of what we see primarily in John chapters 13 through 17 is Jesus' personal teachings with his disciples. And just for notation of it, it is actually in the gospel of John alone that we have this much personal uh, teachings of Jesus in, God, in John's gospel. But anyway, so the point that I'm making is. What happened? So we're at the end of Jesus's ministry. Public ministry is over with. Those three years, that's done. Now we're at the final pass of where Jesus is going to die, and what John does at the end of chapter twelve is he actually reflects over the results of Jesus's public ministry. And this is when he said, even though, although Jesus had done so many wonderful works before the people, yet they did not believe in him. And that's when I went into this. Uh, uh, long commentary uh, concerning exactly why basically dealing with election but what John was simply saying was the even though they saw the wonders of Jesus they still could not believe and accept in him because ultimately God had rejected him and that's when he quoted Isaiah 53 and 1 and then he tied that together with Isaiah chapter 6 53 and 1 saying what? How that the Messiah would come and do great things before them. The arm of the Lord is being revealed. But nevertheless, his message, the proclamation of himself, he himself, they would not receive. Lord, who has believed our report. And then again, that quotation from Isaiah chapter 6, when it says, for he, why? Why didn't they believe? He has hardened their hearts. He has closed their eyes so that they would not, I'm sorry, so that they even could not believe. But anyway, we talked about that at length in the previous video. Go back and check it out if you have not seen it. But the point is, chapter 12 actually closed with, in Jesus' ministry, although he had done such great things, it ended with his ministry not having great success. And when I say great success, I mean a lot of people not believing in Jesus. And John, and John simply said it was because of what God had hardened their hearts that they could not believe. Okay, so enough of that. Now let's continue on in chapter 13. We're going to see if we can try to finish chapter 13 in one video. Now it's kind of lengthy. I think about 38 verses or so, but for the most part, is very narrative and there there's not a lot of theological important things that we need to strike there are always a few things that we need to hit upon but as for the most part you can kind of visualize it as the scene of a story that is being played out okay that's why we call it kind of like we call it in the sense of being a narrative all right anyway enough of that so let's just go into chapter 13 as we deal once again, remember where we are, the final Passover, okay? And now this is what some people call the Lord's Supper. 
The Jews don't know anything about the Lord's Supper. And I don't know exactly why we really call it the Lord's Supper, but it is the most ancient tradition in Jewish history stemming from uh, the result of their deliverance from Egypt thousands of years ago. And it's the celebration of the Passover. And it is in the Passover itself that speaks of true spiritual deliverance, not because of the blood of the lamb that is put on the doorposts of their homes so that death would pass them by, but the blood of the Messiah that is soon to be shed. And that blood should be spilled on the cross and applied to their hearts. And this would deliver them not from simple physical death, but from spiritual death. That is separation from God and eternal damnation. And this is the Passover meaning and celebration that is attached completely to the work of work and person of Jesus. Okay. So with all of that, let's get into the final Passover. Verse number one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Okay. Now, as I said, it is quite narrative and just imagine, just turn on the theater of your mind so that you can see what's going on. But before I actually get into the events that Jesus began to do during the Passover, uh, it starts when John begins this section. Notice how he starts it off. Number one, let's notice the feast of the Passover, but that his hour had come again. He is reflecting on what? that the time for Jesus is death. And we already know it is inclusive. It is inclusive of what the death, the resurrection, as well as the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. Even though we don't see the ascension of Jesus uh, uh, until for the most part, we see it in a clear sense, absolute sense at the end of the gospel. And also in the beginning of the book of Acts, but nevertheless, Speaking in general terms, that is what is being implied here. Notice, knowing that Jesus had come from the Father and is getting ready to return back to the Father. So that speaks of his what? His death, then resurrection, and then following that, we know 40 days after resurrection, his ascension into heaven. But even more so, notice the, the language that John uses, how Number one, let me, let me just deal with it in order. How number one, it makes clear of Jesus's love for his disciples, how he loved them completely and to the uttermost. So therefore all that Jesus did, he did expressly. Number one, he gave his life for the sins of the world, but even more so, more so, for the sins, for the love of his elect. So all that Jesus did in his ministry, even to the point of his death, he did it for the love of his people. Okay, so that's number one that it shows. Now, another thing, as I was just trying to state to you, notice the language that is being used, how that Jesus knew who he was and he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going, that he was God in the beginning. God made flesh, came into this world with a mission, and then after completing his mission, he will return back to the one who sent him. He will return back to God, his father. So we see that is a sense of exaltation. And that's what you need to see that's beginning to drive home the point that Jesus is about to make. Jesus is someone extremely great. How great he is. God in the beginning came into human form and he is on, and he knows 
exactly who he is. He is not confused about that. And he also knows exactly the exalted position where he will return again. You see it now? That idea concerning exaltation of Jesus. And when you compare that to Jesus' own knowledge of his exaltation to what he is about to do, it really drives home the point. Okay, so let's keep on going. So what happens during the Passover celebration, during this, right, during the Passover cedar, some call it. And we're not going to get it into the Passover and all of the elements that are involved. But it was sometime during this that Jesus got up and he placed a towel around his waist and he got a basin. He got a basin. And we're going to get into that as we continue to move on. All right. So now let's let's get into verse number five and beyond. Now, this section is probably going to be a little lengthy. Because it's basically, again, what, saints? It's narrative. So just let me just read it, and then we'll go back and make the explanations. Not a lot of theology, but there is some, and it is significant. Verse 5, then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you, what, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Okay, so now let's go. So what happened? He gets up from the Passover, Passover celebration, the table, and he puts a towel around his waist and he takes a basin and he fills that with water and prepares to wash the disciples' feet. Now, what you have to understand is all of the eye, all eyes of the disciples, all 12 apostles are present. 12 disciples are present. You know? And the reason why I said 12, uh, 12 disciples, Judas is present amongst them, but Judas is not truly a disciple. So therefore, Judas is not truly an apostle, even though he was chosen and sent of Jesus in ministry, in ministry, Judas was still what? An unbeliever. But anyway, so all of them are watching Jesus and what he was trying to do, and they have full understanding of what it is. You see, only slaves would do that. No, well, not just only slaves. Sometimes the wise, wise would wash the, wash the feet of their husbands when he came home. The wives would wash the feet of their husbands or children would wash the feet of their parents. All right. And then slaves would wash the feet of their masters. Slave would wash their master's feet. And we understand Jesus is not a wife, of course, and Jesus is not their children, of course. So Jesus is acting as a slave. So all of them are looking at Jesus and what he is doing and acting as a slave and beginning to wash their feet. And when he comes to Peter, when Jesus, so he washes all of their feet. And by the time Jesus gets to Peter, Peter is, is indignant about such a thing, Peter thinks that this type of a thing is actually beneath Jesus. He thinks that this is a condescending act for Jesus to do. And so Peter says, and you should read it in the Greek, Lord, will you, you wash my feet? A person such as me, you wash my feet? So Peter puts the emphasis on the person of Jesus. And so therefore, Peter strongly objects to Jesus washing his feet because this is the job 
of a slave, one who serves another. And in the mind of Peter, it is not Jesus who should be serving him. But anyway, and when Jesus responded to Peter, he simply said to Peter, patiently, kindly, you do not understand what I'm doing to you now, but hereafter. Now, the explanation for all of this is going to come in the text. Okay, it's going to come in the text, but more so, more so. Remember, Jesus is, this is his farewell. Okay. And this is what we see going on in chapters 13 through 17. His final teachings to his disciples before Jesus departs out of this world, before he's crucified. And we all understand crucified, resurrected, and finally ascends. And Jesus is gone. He's not with them anymore. So these become, or should I even say, this becomes an object lesson for them to remember in how to treat one another when Jesus is gone. And the idea, the principal idea of what Jesus is simply saying is, notice I first brought up when it talks about how he loved them to the end. And now notice this particular situation is dealing with service. And this is when Paul says what? By love, serve one another. And this is what Jesus is teaching them objectively. I am serving you. And okay, and I should simply stop there because the rest of the text is going to be about that. But this becomes the example for all of God's people to follow, especially, notice what I just said, saints, especially for the leadership, those whom God have blessed with the gifts of leadership. Your job is not to be served by the congregation. Your job is to serve the congregation. For if Jesus, the great one, served his sheep, should we not, sure, not serve the sheep that God has given us? His sheep, God's sheep. God has given us his sheep to tend to. So therefore the object lesson is what? Serve. Let the greatest amongst you be servant of all. But anyway, so what happens? Peter objects. And in the Greek, he uses the Greek, the two Greek particles, ume, which means you can translate it. Not, not. That's the strongest negation that you can give. You will definitely not wash my feet. And what did Jesus do? Jesus responds to him and tells him, and now we can see Jesus kind of strengthening up a little bit. He says, and if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, here's the thing. What was Jesus trying to say? What does he say when I say, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Some say that this refers to baptism. That is not true. This is not referring to baptism at all because number one, what? Jesus is only washing his feet. Remember, Peter's, uh, Peter said, when Jesus said that, wash my head and my hands as well. And Jesus said, that is not necessary. So this is not referring to baptism. That is to say that unless a person is baptized, they don't have any type of relationship with Jesus. That is not what Jesus is saying, and neither is that not the context. But rather, what Jesus is saying is this. He is intimating something much more than simple washing. For unless I wash you, unless I, through my sacrifice, through my blood, what time is it? What time is it? It is the season of the Passover. What is going to happen during the Passover? Who is the Passover lamb? What did John the Baptist say? Behold, when he saw Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is the blood of Jesus. That What does John say? He washes away our sins. And so therefore, it seems that Jesus is intimating not so much as the washing of his feet, but the washing that Jesus will do in fullness in the giving of his life 
for sins. And so therefore, Peter must accept Jesus. He must accept Jesus in what he does. And notice what I just said. He must accept Jesus in what he does even now in what he is doing. That is his service. For the service of Jesus is not only a service of humility, washing of the feet, but it is also the serving of the giving of his life. And therefore, if Peter rejects Jesus, his person, his work, and his service, guess what? He has no relationship with Jesus. He has no part with Jesus. Therefore, we must accept Jesus in all of his service, in all of what he has done for us. And in that, we have, Peter has, part with Jesus, relationship with Jesus. But anyway, so when Peter heard those strong words coming from Jesus, Peter, he retracted and said, I tell you what, Lord, not only just wash my feet, but wash my head and my hands as well. And so Jesus simply said, what? Here's what you got to understand. The roads of Judea, the roads of Judea in that day, the people normally wore sandals, and so therefore they would get their feet dirty as they walked the roads. And so Jesus simply said to him, he who has taken a bath already does not need to have his whole body washed. The only part of him that is dirty is his feet. And so therefore, I'm going to wash your feet only. So Jesus referred back to literally the task that he was doing the washing of the feet and told Peter, it's not necessary for me to wash the rest of you. And then he says, because what? You are already clean. And then Jesus began to speak spiritually for you are already clean. That is, he brings in the concept of what? Having taken a bath and the concept of having believed in Jesus. You are already clean because why not all of you and then it said this it was this when he says that not all of you is in reference to judas why because judas was not clean spiritually so what did jesus do he used he used that particular situation when he says no need to wash all of you because you're already clean that is, you are physically clean, so I don't need to wash your head and your hands as well. But then he also made a spiritual indicator with that same statement by saying, not all of you, that is, clean spiritually. Clean spiritually. And this reference is towards Judas, whom we've already been talking about even earlier, and we know that it is this Judas who is the one who will betray Jesus, okay? So now let's see where we are, because I think I'm just about there. Yes, verse number 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I, so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Okay, so let's talk about that. So what happens? So after he had finished doing what he had done, doing what he was doing and overcame Peter's objection, he came back to the table and simply says, take note of what I just did. What I did. And this takes us all the way back to the beginning. What? Remember when I said in the beginning, Jesus knew he knew who he was, that he was God who had come from heaven, taken human form. He knew he was the Messiah. 
He knew that at the time of his death and his resurrection, he would ascend back to heaven. He knew he was an exalted person to say the least. And this is what it once again reflects to. And this is once again why I said at the beginning, why it said what it said. Okay. What? Jesus says, take note. Take note of what I did to you. It's an object lesson. You call me. Notice what he said. You call me teacher and Lord. And guess what? You are correct. I am indeed teacher and Lord. That is your teacher. And notice the whole idea. If I am your teacher, I'm greater than you in that sense. And if I am indeed Lord, and remember the title for Lord is what? Is a divine title. If I am indeed Lord, then of course I am greater than you. So he says what? If I then, and notice how Jesus switched. I love how he switches it, but I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Notice what it said in the text. You call me the teacher and the Lord. Jesus switched it around. He says, if I indeed am the Lord and the teacher. <laughs> Beautiful thing. He used the divine title first, but we're not going to make a big deal of it. But, in, but notice something else that's important too. Even though it didn't say it in the first uh mention of it. The definite articles I use. Definite article simply means the. And whenever you say it's the Lord and the teacher, there is none like me. When he speaks of himself being the teacher, it says he is the greatest of all teachers. He is a great one. If he is the Lord, he is the Lord of all lords. Okay. So if I, one being so great, would stoop down to do such a menial task of a slave in service to you. I am setting forth an example for you to see. This is how you should serve one another. Follow my example of humility. Follow my example in service. Again, what did I just say to you guys? The ones who have been gifted the most, you are indebted to serve the ones who are even less gifted than you. Or as Jesus would later say, let the greatest one amongst you be servant of all. Anyway, so he says, I gave you that example to follow. And finally, he says, have, don't get an attitude about it. Notice, truly, truly. Remember what we said about the truly, truly. Jesus is going, going to say something that is important. And what does he say? Understand something about yourself. What? You are a slave and I am the master. And guess what? The slave is not greater than the master. Understand another point about yourself. I am the sender. You are the one who is being sent. And so therefore, the sent one cannot be greater than the one who sends him. So therefore, if I, the one who sends you, I, the one who am your Lord, I, the one who am your master, if I do these things to you, you should be glad to do them for one another. Don't think so much of yourself. Don't think so much of yourself. Always have within yourself a spirit of humility. And then Jesus says what? You are truly blessed if you know these things, but even more so. What did I say, saints? Even more so you are when you do them. So the point is, it's not enough just to know about humility and to know about service. The great and true blessing comes when you live it out. And that's what Jesus simply said. As I have lived this way towards you, you live this way towards one another. Okay. 18. I do, I do not speak of all of you. Once again, the idea concerning those who are not clean. But let's read the text. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. 
He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Okay. And so now Jesus continues to move on in the conversation. He's further in the conversation. Uh, he's not speaking of everybody. Remember the whole idea of being washed. And he says, but not all of you are clean. And remember that he said in John chapter six, what? Remember, uh, uh, this was at when he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life in you. And a lot of the people who had come looking for Jesus no longer follow Jesus that day. And only Jesus' disciples, only the 12 remained. Only the 12 remained. And Jesus turned to them and said, will you go as well? And Peter spoke up for them and said, Lord, where shall we go? For you have the words to eternal life. And Jesus responded and said to him, have I not chosen all of you? And one of you is a devil. And he was speaking even then concerning Judas Iscariot, who was to betray him. So even now he is speaking of Judas and notice what he says. He says, I've chosen all of you, but what? The scripture must always be fulfilled because notice the very setting. What is the setting? The Passover celebration. Remember, they took, took the bread and they would eat it and they would take the sop and eat it, the little mortar. And I'm not going to get into all of the elements involved in the Passover, but it dealt with uh, a, a situation of eating bread and things of that nature and mortar to remind them of their deliverance from Egypt. All right. And so Judas was at this table eating with them. And we're going to even see later on that Jesus will literally hand Judas a piece of bread himself. But he just simply says, speaking of all not being clean and speaking of one who is going to betray him, that is Judas. He says what? He quotes Psalm 41, I think 41, nine, something like that. But Psalm 41, that the one who sits at his table and eats with him has lifted up his heel against him. The idea of lifting up the heel simply refers to to betray him and to eat with an individual, to sup, to eat with an individual is a sign of intimate fellowship. And just think about it. Judas was of the inner circle. He was one of the 12, one who shared an intimate relationship and an intimate fellowship with Jesus that most people did not share. And what happens? It is this Judas who literally betrays Jesus. He betrays this friendship with Jesus. So Jesus quotes that said that it must happen. And he, and he tells them, and I'm telling you these things so that you'll know when you see it come to pass, I am. And then it says, I am he. The Greek literally says, I am. And here, I believe the reference is because remember, we're in the gospel of John and John loves to use the I am. We've done that already. The uh, 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 Exodus chapter three, Isaiah's chapters 41 through 45, the I am of God and there is none like me. The statement that speaks of God being God and the I am's of John uh, speaking to Jesus's divinity that he is God. So the most part of what I'm trying to say is this. And so Jesus is saying what? When you see these things take place, when you see Judas has betrayed me, it will come to your mind. You will know that I indeed am God and I have told you all of these things before they ever happen. This will solidify your faith in who I am. I am indeed the son of man and I am also the son of God. Okay. And then he kind of finishes it off with the whole issue of what? 
of humility. Remember the whole idea where he just washed their feet and then he just told them the example of that object lesson. He says, I'm your master, I'm your Lord, I'm your teacher and your Lord, and look what I have done. I have set an example for you. So what does he say? As I send you, those who sent those who receive you, not simply receive you, but they also receive me. And those who receive me not only receives me, but they also receives him who sent me. That is God the Father. So he ends with what? The final statement of sending them with the mindset that they need to have. And what is that mindset that they need to have in their working for Jesus? A mindset of humility and the mindset of service. Okay. So we are left here at this particular part here, here we're moving to the, the arena of Jesus being betrayed because what did he just say? Truly, truly, I say unto you, the person sitting up eating at this table with me has lifted up his heel against me. And now you can imagine the concern that it will begin to have in the minds of the disciples that one of the 12 unbelievable, no one could believe it, that one of them would actually betray Jesus. So as we continue on, we deal with that instance of who is the one, Jesus, that is going to betray you? Because guess what we see? Judas has covered his tracks. Judas has so well disguised himself that none of the other disciples have no clue that Judas has betrayed. That joker is going to be the one to betray him. They believe that Judas is just like them. And Jesus has shocked them to the core. Let's continue. Uh, 21. When Jesus has said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, notice again, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus's bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaning back thus on Jesus's bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Okay, <laughs> so now we get into Jesus' declaration, or should we even say his revealing of his soon betrayal by Judas Iscariot. But, so he just simply says, truly, truly, again, we're watching that truly, truly. Jesus is about to say something very important. What? One of you guys, one of the 12, are going to betray me. And so the disciples, again, what I just said, Judas hid his tracks. They had no idea. So they're looking at one another. You can imagine, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Is it, you know, what's going on? Which one of us is it? And so not knowing who it was, there is Peter looks over at John and, and, and I'm not going to get into all of the details because what you'll find out is once you bring all of the gospels together, it was John, the writer of this gospel on one side of Jesus and Judas actually on the other side of Jesus. And it appears that Judas was on the right of Jesus, but I'm not going to get into all of that because that's not the point that John is trying to drive home. But nevertheless, there Peter looks at John and Peter said, and notice how he references John. And even we'll see in John's gospel, John references himself in this way. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that is not to say that John was Jesus's favorite, but it does imply that Jesus had a special love for John. That's the fact because John references himself that way. And Peter understands 
If anybody probably can get an answer from Jesus to who it is, guess who it is? It's John. So Peter beckons John and says, John, John, ask him. He'll tell you. He'll tell you. And so John leans over towards Jesus' bosom and says to him in a loving way, Lord, which one of us is it? Who is it that does it? And Jesus just simply says, the one to whom I dip the bread again. This is the Passover celebration. There were the dipping of the bread stuff that I was telling you about. But the one that I do this dip and give him this morsel, he is the one who will betray me. And in dipping it, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. Now, what's kind of weird about all of this, even though Jesus just told John that it would be the one that he gives the morsel to, when we continue reading, they're still not going to get it. They just, it's just, I don't know. It's just like a thick cloud is over them. And for some, and for some reason, it still will not resonate that Judas is actually getting ready to betray Jesus. It's going to be, they're going to be like, mm, <laughs> I don't know. But nevertheless, Jesus reveals his betrayer and the dinner goes on. Verse number 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, notice, notice. No one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Okay, so now let's talk about it. So what happened? Once Jesus gave the morsel to Judas, notice what it said. Satan entered Judas. Now, this is a big deal. It is a big deal, but, and I don't want to talk a lot about it. Let me just simply make a comment. All throughout scripture, that is especially, notably, notably in the New Testament, we have seen demon possessions, possessions by demons, okay? And the, you can see this all the time, Jesus casting demons out. But never have we seen satanic oppression. There has never been a time when Satan himself has possessed an individual. Judas is the only individual that we see in the New Testament who Satan possessed himself. And it seems to suggest what Judas is about to do, Satan wants to savor this for himself. Satan wants to do this job that will lead to the death of Jesus the Messiah for himself. Satan will not entrust this job of betraying the son of God, the Messiah to death to no other fallen angel. This job he will do for himself. So this is, and I'm trying not to make a big deal out of it, but it is, this is a job that Satan does himself. And for this reason, he now possesses Judah and he leads Judah, I'm sorry, Judas, Judas, and he leads Judas back to the chief priest. Back to the chief priest, what? Remember earlier, it was at, it was at the time of the Passover, during the Passover season, this Passover season, that Judas had gone, we see this in the book of Luke, I think it's in Luke chapter 22, that Judas had previously gone to the chief priests and asked them, what will you give me? What monies will you give me? If I should hand Jesus over to you. And they agreed with Judas to give him 30 pieces of silver. And it was from that point when Judas made this contract with the Jewish leaders, he began to look for an opportune time to betray Jesus. You got it? So therefore what? Now this is what you got to see. And remember, let me also bring. So first point, first point, 
Judas had already gone to the chief priest to get money to betray Jesus. That's number one. The second thing I want you guys to remember, the chief priest, the rulers of the synagogue, had already rejected Jesus and made up their minds to have Jesus put to death. But remember what they said, not during, notice what I just said, not during the Passover season. Remember the Passover. Okay, slowing it down just in case you've forgotten. Remember, three festive times that all Jewish men were commanded to appear in Jerusalem at the temple. It was during the Feast of Passover, during the Feast of Weeks, that is the Feast of Pentecost, and during Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, those three times. The population of, Judah, of, of Judea would really enlarge because you have so many Jews, Jewish men especially, in Jerusalem during these festive times. The Romans would send additional military there because they didn't want to riot because of nationalism. That is, the Jews want to decide during these festive times, we're sick and tired of the Romans, let's rebel against them. So this was a, they had to be careful during this time so that a rebellion would not happen. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the priests, they did not want to kill Jesus during this time, lest killing Jesus should cause an uproar amongst the people. But you got to see what's going on now. So notice what happened. The Satan enters into Judas at this time to do the work. Judas had not planned on, planned on betraying Jesus at this moment. But what happened? Jesus triggers the event. What? Jesus says to Judas after that, what? What you have decided to do, what you must do, do it now and do it quickly. So Jesus just energized Judas's plan. He triggered him. Why? Because it was not the plan of what? Of the priests and Judas to kill Jesus during the Passover. But guess what? Jesus is the Passover lamb. It was in the mind of God, the plan of God, the will of God that at this Passover, Jesus should sacrifice his life at this appointed time. So even though Judas even though the chief priests had not determined they wanted to kill Jesus after the Passover, Jesus, according to the sovereign will and plan of God says, I don't care what you have planned to do. This is God's will to do. Judas, do it now. So Jesus actually triggered the plan. He triggered the time for Judas's betrayal even when Judas had not even intended to betray him at that time, when the chief priest did not want to kill him at that time. Because notice, it was at that time when Jesus actually was crucified, the time that they didn't want to do it. But what did Jesus say? Do it now. And why did he say it? It was the divine plan of God that it should be done. Exodus chapter 12, Jesus is the Passover lamb. But anyway, remember what I said to you guys, even though Jesus told John, one that I give this morsel, he is the one to betray me. And there was still a fog in their minds. <laughs> so when Jesus did all of that, gave him the morsel and told John to go do what he had to do quickly, which was the betrayal, told Judas to do what he had to do. Judas knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The other disciples had no idea. Notice what he said. They thought that because Judas was the treasurer in the group, that he was telling Judas to go out and buy some type of provisions for the Passover celebration or go out and give something to the poor. They had no idea of what Jesus was actually putting into motion at that time the event that would bring about his death by sending Judas to the chief priest. But the point of it is the disciples still had no idea what was really going on. Let's continue. Then it says, verse number 30, before we keep moving, because this is of theological importance, that when he gave them more, the morsel to Judas and Judas went out immediately, 
it was night. Now, here's the beauty of that statement, that it was night. First of all, the Passover is only celebrated at night. Ever since the Passover was given in Exodus chapter 12, it was a yearly celebration that only took place from evening till that morning time. So the Passover would always be celebrated at night. It is unnecessary to mention it was night. Why? Because it's always celebrated at night. In saying that it was night, what John was trying to do, remember I told you about how John liked to use certain themes, the whole theme of his book, Jesus is God come in the flesh. But John also liked to use sub themes dealing with what? Good, evil, light, and darkness. And so here, as John says, it was night. John is speaking of not just simply darkness, but the presence and activity of sin. And so therefore, what is John saying? When John said it was night, he is dealing with the prevalence of sin that is about to take place at that time. Why? What is getting ready to happen to Jesus? Jesus is about to bear upon himself the sins of the world. What is Judas about to do? Judas is about to, to actually do one of the greatest sins that you can ever do. He is about to betray the son of God. Woe unto him who betrays the son of man, Jesus says. Why? For it would have been better that that man had never been born. It is night. Sin is present. Okay, now let's continue. 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Now let's talk about that and then we'll finish the rest. But we started to deal with once again, glory. Remember this part takes us all the way back to chapter 12. What? Remember when the Greeks wanted to see Jesus and what did Jesus say? Except the wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it should fall, it brings forth much fruit. I, if I be lifted up, I draw a man of men to me. And this is the, that he was, the death that he was speaking by which he should be what? Glorified. And Jesus spoke of his upcoming death as what? Glory. His death would bring glory to both the father and the son. Because why? It does the will of God. It answers for the sins of mankind, even namely for the sins of the elect. And also it removes the judgment. It, that's what it means to answer of the sin. It removes the judgment so that, so that God's people can be with him. Why? Where there is sin, you cannot stand in the presence of God. And God, the reason why he has this plan of salvation in glorifying himself, he sends the Messiah to shed his blood to remove the penalty of sin so that his people can be with him. Revelation 21, behold, God himself is with man and he'll always forever be with him. Now that sin has been removed. This brings glory to God. So in Jesus giving up his life, he fulfills the plan and the will of God. And in doing this, it glorifies the father and Jesus through his obedience to the father, he himself is glorified. So Jesus speaks of the glory of his upcoming death. That's why everything is pointing towards what Judas is leaving out to betray Jesus and Judas will return with soldiers and in the end they will crucify Jesus. But this crucifixion is not so much unto sadness. This crucifixion is to the glory of God. And then Jesus finishes that statement and says what? That this glory will ultimately be glory, that the father will ultimately glorify Jesus 
even immediately. And in this, he speaks of the glory of Jesus in his resurrection and finally in his ascension back to heaven to the throne of God, to the right hand of God the Father. This would be the ultimate glory of Jesus after his great sacrifice. Okay, so now let's bring it to a close. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Okay, now we get into a little sadness of it. What? Jesus says, little children, notice that kindness and love that he has when he speaks to them. He says, I'm going to be with you just a little while longer. Because why? Just a few more hours. And I mean hours. Jesus would be hung on a cross. And where I'm going, that is Jesus going into death, going into death, and then ultimately going to heaven returning back to the father. That's when John 13 opens up. He is going back to where he came from, to the one who sent him. You cannot follow. You cannot follow. And so he tells them he is getting ready to go away. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. Now, the commandment in itself is not new because it's given in Leviticus 19. Uh, when God says, love your neighbor as yourself. But what Jesus did was Jesus went beyond that commandment. Notice what I said. The first one said, what? Love your neighbor as you what? Love yourself. Now, most of us, we naturally love ourselves, but there are some who don't love themselves. There are some people who hate themselves, hate things about themselves, even so much that they will commit suicide to destroy and end their own lives. So what does Jesus say? Greater than simply loving, your, loving one another like you love yourself. No, love one another like I have loved you. And that is, and when he uses the word love, he uses the verb, the Greek verb, agapao. Agapao, that verb literally means to love sacrificially. To love sacrificially. And this is what it is, and you guys already know what it means. For God so loved, agapao, for so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his unique son up to death. You got it. So Jesus says, what you love one another like I love you to the point that you are willing to give your life for one another. And this is generically for the whole church. And right even here, you should be you should be saying you should be thinking to yourself, Lord, help me to do that, because let me tell you something. That's wild. Who can simply say, I love my brother. Say for instance, brother or sister sitting right next to you in church or whatever. Or even a brother or sister you have never known. But indeed, they are your brother and sister. I love them so much. I will give up my life so that they can live. Is that what Jesus is saying? You're darn tootin'. You love one another. How? As I. I am the example, just like I loved you. What was the example of my love for you? I gave my life for you. And Jesus says, and so as I have done, 
you do the same. Love one another. So we see a couple of things already. Number one, as Jesus is preparing to depart, he has already taught them about what? Humility and service. Remember the feet washing? And then he now tells them to talk about what? About loving one another with what? A self-sacrificing love so much that you'll give up your own life. And so he says what? By having this type of a love, everybody who sees will know that you are unique. You are my disciples. We prove, we prove to be true, genuine disciples of Jesus when we love one another. Not when we talk and backbite one another and when we tear down one another, but when we truly love one another, it is the evidence of who we are, that indeed we are Christians. And then Jesus began to say, I'm sorry, Simon Peter, because what is the idea? Jesus has just said he is getting ready to go. And just like he told the Jews earlier, he is departing. And Jesus meant that he's, he's going to be crucified and resurrected and, of course, ascend back into heaven. He says, just like I said to those unbelieving Jews, same applies to you. Peter responds that Jesus, his Lord and his Messiah is leaving, is leaving. And so he says, Lord, uh, where are you going that, that, that we cannot follow? And Jesus just simply says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. That is, Jesus is about to, about to lay down his life, but he'll be resurrected and he'll send into heaven. The disciples cannot come now, but guess what? Later on in the passage of time, they will die and they will be with him in heaven. Where I'm going, you can't follow right now. It's not time for you to follow me into death. That is even to heaven with the father. But later on, you will. Okay. And then Peter begins to say, he, he puts forth in arrogance loyalty. That's basically what it is. Statements of arrogance loyalty. What? Lord, why can I not follow you? Because I will lay down my life for you. Now, and then Jesus simply said, let me say this and then I'll come back and we'll close it. And Jesus says, looks at Peter because once again, what? Jesus knows all things. Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? <laughs> no, no, no. Before the rooster crows, you will three times deny that you even know me. And that is, remember, Peter is of the inner circle. That is the worst cut that you can actually give to simply say, I don't even know the man. And we all know what happened in Peter's denial. He went three times until ultimately Peter began to call down curses upon himself, swearing before God, I told you, I don't even know this man. And that's when the rooster would crow. But Peter, in his belief, thinking of himself more than he ought to think, says to Jesus that he would be loyal to Jesus no matter what. He would follow Jesus no matter what. Caught up in the heat of the moment. Now listen to this, saints. Caught up in the heat of the moment, in the times of emotion and passion, he may have felt that way. We'll see, we see that now when Peter makes that statement. Then even once they go into the garden and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and once again, Peter will be caught up in the heat of the moment and take a sword and cut off Malchus, the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. Peter caught up in the heat of the moment. But once things cool down and Peter begins to reflect on the situation, reflect on the danger of the situation that people can actually die, that Peter himself could actually die. Once he cools down, Peter changes and then he does exactly what Jesus said that he will do. He denies his Lord, which brings me to the final point. And when God spoke through Jeremiah, he says what? The heart of man 
is exceedingly wicked and allow me to say weak as well. How do I know? Jesus will say in the garden, pray with me. Why? For the spirit is weak. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Spirit willing, flesh weak. So what did God say through Jeremiah? The heart of man is exceptionally wicked to the point that no man, even the individual himself, cannot even know the depths of weakness, the depths of wickedness of our hearts. But then he continues to say, but I, the Lord, try the heart. God knows what's in us. And here Jesus says to Peter, but I know what is in you. So let us all pray. You know, I do it myself because we're weak. Even that's why the scripture says what? Take heed in thinking you stand. Why? Lest you fall. We don't know what we will do. All we can say is, Lord, help me. And Lord, keep me from sinning against you. And all we can do in the very end is rely on the words of Jude. You know that final book right before the book of Revelation? Jude. And what did Jude say? Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and present you forward to the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. Who? The only wise God, our Savior. And to him and him alone be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forever. Amen. Only Jesus can keep us from falling. And as we get ready to end chapter 13 and we get into chapter 14 and 15, he's going to make that very clear. I am the vine and you are the branches. You must remain in me. You must depend on me. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me with all of that. <laughs> if you can say that you've been blessed, that the Lord has blessed your heart through these teachings, may I once again ask you to support this ministry so that I can continue to bring you lessons word by word teachings in the book of, in the word of God. But there's a link in the description that you can always use. The link is always found in every video that you can use to support this ministry. And I pray the Lord bless your heart to do so. And I also pray that you have been strengthened and increased in knowledge, wisdom, and an understanding by all of these teachings. But anyway, for those of you who have supported always on the bottom of my heart, Thank you for all of your support. Anyway, guys, thanks for joining me with that. And we'll see you next time as we continue in Jesus' final teachings to his apostles before his upcoming death. And these teachings, as we'll see, will be extensive. All right, guys, see you then.